0: Today on the show, we're featuring uh, Dr. Robert Smith, who is going to uh, give a talk at Herman's Jazz Club on November 15th on the top 10 diseases of all time. He's going to join us from the University of Ottawa. And later on, we're going to have Miles Sauer, editor in chief of The Martlet, who's going to talk to us about uh, the UVic news stories that they're chasing this week. But first... In mid November of last year, uh, author and chair of the UBC writing department, Stephen Galloway, was suspended with pay for serious allegations against him. But other than UBC calling them serious, the allegations were not expanded upon uh, at the time this was announced. It shocked Canada's tight knit literary community, where no one is separated by uh, more than two or three degrees. In the period between this revelation and his ultimate dismissal without severance in June of this year, various media reports revealed persons on campus had accused him of inappropriate behavior with students, which included sexual harassment. This weekend, an expansive feature-length article written by Marsha Letterman at the Globe and Mail revealed that Madeleine Tain, a recent winner of the Governor General's Award and a finalist for the Man Booker Prize and the Giller, wrote an open letter on her blog criticizing UBC for their handling of the incident. And because of this, she wished to have her name removed from UBC marketing materials. It also brought in two other Canadian authors, Chelsea Rooney and Sierra Sky Gemma, both grads of the UBC Creative Writing Programme. Rooney was tasked with collecting testimonies outside of the investigation done by retired BC judge Mary Ellen Boyd when she had no prior professional experience doing so. There's a lot more details there uh, that uh, deserve to be read in full in the Globe piece and also in prior features as well that have been written for the Walrus uh, and the UBC. The incident has divided many in the Canadian literary world, and to put it in some perspective, I spoke to a UVic playwright and writing student Jaqueline Plan. I'm uh, really pleased to be joined today by Jacqueline Plan, a fifth-year uh, writing and economics student here at the University of Victoria and a uh, the drama editor of the undergraduate writing journal This Side of West. Uh, Jacqueline, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Um, so, th- this situation about the former ubc uh head of creative writing has been ongoing for about a year now and it's been well very controversial and very divisive i think uh so for people who you know might be new to this um do you want to sort of explain like, put it into context and what happened? Uh,
1: well, in a nutshell, what's happened is about this time last year, um, I think the creative writing department, um, of UBC, like, announced that, uh, Stephen Galloway, their current head of department, was actually, um, going to be suspended with pay due to serious allegations. And there are, like, quotations around that serious allegations Mm -hmm. because they didn't specify what they were, um, basically that that was all that was announced and the entire writing department as well as the university and kind of canadia canadia canada's literary community was kind of shocked about this because you can't just say serious allegations it's there was not much transparency about like what was going on um that was the big deal of what happened last year uh but then they hired a former ub former bc uh Supreme Court judge mm-hmm. to come in and do an investigation about some of these allegations Mary Ellen Boyd. Yeah yeah. Um, and she finished up a report in April which she then submitted to UBC themselves and in June uh, Stephen Galloway was fired uh, without severance from UBC
0: Mm-hmm um, now, there there are a lot of aspects of this report that we don't know because the report actually hasn't been released
1: publicly yet. It hasn't, but some details, like, have been kind of leaked to the media um, mm-hmm. from kind of all sides. Like, it mm-hmm. sounds like there are a lot of people on every side of this, Stephen Galloway um, and his colleagues and friends and also the people who are accusing him of whatever these serious allegations were. Uh, and it sounds like from UBC themselves, like, there's been some leakage all across the board. Mm-hmm. Um, and that brings up sort of one of the big
0: areas of this, which is sort of the role of of secrecy versus transparency in uh, these kinds of investigations generally. When staff are uh, disciplined or fired in a university setting, it's usually quite public. And I think it's fair to say that, you know, saying that you know, they want to keep some things under wraps has kinda of done more harm than good.
1: Uh I would I would kind of agree. In this case, it sounds like it's been said, um, because these allegations happened at the same time as like the Bill Cosby um rape allegations and the Gian Gomeshi case, there were insinuations, like all accusation, there's been no it hasn't been founded. Um mm-hmm. that the serious allegations were sexual assault and harassment allegations. So Like, it's kind of important to know, like, what's going on. Um, Mm -hmm.
0: Um, I think one of the reasons I think why, well, one of the reasons why we're talking about it today is that there was a very large feature article that came out on the issue, uh, published by the Globe and Mail Mm -hmm. uh, this weekend. Was there anything new that we learned from the course of that feature? Because there have been other features that have been published on it before, for instance, in The Walrus.
1: Yeah. Um, Well, there definitely was um, more first-hand knowledge from some of the, um, I guess they called them ancillary complainants. Mm -hmm. Um, There was direct interviews with some of them, including uh, Chelsea Rooney and Sierra Sky Gemma. uh, And they talked about how they felt that they weren't properly represented in um, in, uh, the final report that was submitted to UBC. Separately, uh, Madeleine Thien, uh she, uh, Governor General, award-winning author now, um, mm-hmm. has also recently published, like, a letter discussing how UBC has kind of failed this whole process of the allegations and the investigation and where this has ended up, and it's ended up in a mess.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, and all these writers, like, come from like, the UBC Department of Writing, where they have connections mm-hmm. to, and it kind of shows just how interconnected the Canadian literary community really is. Oh,
1: it's hugely interconnected. Like, half of our writing department, um, our professors have either been ta- taught there, they've been educated there, either in their undergrad, their master's, or they themselves have been instructors there. Like, this is actually very close to you, Vic. We've got a bunch of people who very, are really good friends with people who are directly impacted by this.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, do you th- get the sense, like, in the department that, you know, this kind of controversy has, you know, affected the way that students perceive UBC? I'm assuming that some of them are considering UBC for graduate school?
1: Absolutely. I know last year, um, I had several friends who applied to UBC. Um, Some didn't get in as, you know, master's programs go and others did and some did decide to go. Uh, It's definitely uh, made my opinion of UBC a little bit less. Um, But mainly it has to do with just how these allegations were handled. I felt like the dispersion of information just wasn't great. Um, I have a lot of questions about like what the process was to get in gathering information and it sounds like both Stephen Galloway's side with um, his friends and colleagues as well as the complainants, they're also kind of confused about what was going on as well. And since um, a lot of the final reports were uh, blacked out, even like the people who were intimately involved in this whole investigation still don't have the whole picture hmm uh, it, it kind
0: of shows that there doesn't seem to be, like, a lot of established precedent for these kinds of investigations, even though I'm sure that the subject of, um, you know, potentially inappropriate professor-student relationships, like, this isn't new.
1: No, no, no. it's not.
0: Um, so, That doesn't mean it's okay, but mm-hmm. it's not new. hmm I guess what I mean is, like, I'm somewhat surprised that there hasn't been better established precedent when it comes to these kinds of Uh, these kinds of investigations Mm -hmm. Um, in the open letter that uh, Madeline Tain wrote, like there have been some of the details of that report that were kept secret are in this letter. And a lot of people have said, well, I guess this is that the, that the information, like it was, it was released by one person, but that she did not have the, the permission of, the people who submitted testimony in the report to to put it out there
1: oh that's getting into some gray area because like on one hand i agree like these are people who were told by ubc that their testimonies were going to be confidential and in that regard ubc had should have should have followed through they should have kept that more confidential and i guess yeah then i guess madeline shouldn't have released that information but on the other hand madeline letter also discusses um that UBC probably should have gotten in touch with the police and other authorities. Um, like sexual assault is a pretty serious thing. Um, and it's a crime. Like if, if that is something that really happened like that needs to be investigated. Um, if this was just a regular, not even regular, but like still not good, um, mm-hmm. like bullying or just favoritism things, I would be like, yes, that is a university thing. The police don't need to be involved. But if an actual crime occurred, then I do think the police should have been involved. And mm-hmm. I think that was, personally, where I think uh, UBC's mistake was.
0: Mm -hmm. Uh, Do you see any, like, potential for movement on either side? Because right now it seems like they're both becoming just more and more entrenched.
1: It also sounds like everybody's just really unhappy with how this is going Mm -hmm. on. There's Mm -hmm. been a lack of transparency, but on the other hand, there's people who don't want transparency. They want their privacy maintained. I don't really know where the middle ground is here, because— Everyone's really unhappy, and no one wants to go move either way.
0: Mm -hmm. Um, uh, Stephen Galloway's publisher uh, earlier in the earlier sort of within this controversy had had said that they would continue uh, their relationship with him. They would continue to publish. Um, But this is certainly, I mean, a reputational damage. Oh, absolutely. For sure. Um, Do you have any idea sort of how that might affect his career going
1: forward? negatively. Um, Like, I I think that's the only way that can be really summed up. And I think that's really unfortunate. um, Because I think Stephen Galloway was kind of treated unfairly in UBC's investigation by not really having much transparency in like how these investigations were conducted. Um, And to have these kinds of allegations out there and either unfounded, whatever, whether or not he did them, like, that's really bad. Um, I personally know that if I was working with a known abuser, I would probably choose to get out of that situation. But on the other hand, he doesn't deserve to have people running away from him if he didn't do it. So Mm -hmm. I think that's really unfortunate. And I really hope that we're able to get to the bottom of what actually happened so that he's either able to clear his name or we're able to confirm what happened.
0: Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Moreover, the... the... Working in a very uh, small, like, class situation, as you kind of do in the writing department. Oh, it's so small. Like, it's <laughs> I, I, There are sort of instances mentioned in the article where, you know, he would uh, take, like, groups of students, like, 10 or so, like, just out drinking. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh,
1: to confirm, that's normal. Mm-hmm. Uh, within the writing department, there are definitely instances where, like, yeah, you end up going to the same events. You end up talking to your teachers For example, I was just at a reading, I think, just last month, and I ended up having some nice chats and a couple drinks with a couple professors. Like, that's—I feel like that's normal. And also, we're all, hopefully, adults, and we're all of drinking age. So I feel Mm -hmm. like—to clarify, that feels—that's normal.
0: Mm -hmm. Uh, But, like, for instance, for someone such as myself, an undergraduate in the political science department, Mm -hmm. in a larger entity, like, it— It's, uh, I guess, more outside of our cultural norm. Mm -hmm. Um, Do you think that sort of has any, uh, I guess, any, like, you know, possibility for these kinds of, like, situations to happen when you're in close quarters, when you have only 10 or so people, like, in these groups?
1: I'm not quite sure what situations you're referring to. Um, Are we talking about um, the possibility of assault or inappropriate behavior? Or are we talking about, like, intimacy within these types of groups? Probably the latter. Intimacy? Mm -hmm. Um, I kind of feel like that's a a given. Like, if you're Mm -hmm. only working with a limited number of people, like, every day, you're bound to— develop feelings or attractions for other people. I feel like that's normal, but I also think that if there is a, the possibility of a power imbalance like you would have with a teacher and a student that does need to get reported. Um, and I think that was UBC's current standing policy, um, which I know that they've updated since then. I don't know what the new up, I don't know what the new policy is. I don't know anything about it, but everyone should go check that out.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, is there anything that you think is like I don't know missing from the discussion publicly?
1: Um, at this time, I kind of have to feel like I agree that a lot of the complainants uh, deserve to have their privacy maintained because of that inherent power power imbalance of having a teacher and students like against each other. Um, because yeah, if you end up getting on the wrong side of someone who has power over you, there is the potential for abuse. There doesn't matter what kind, whether it plays into favoritism. Or bullying it it's a it's a potential we're human beings we can make mistakes um so i do think that privacy is needed in these kinds of things so it avoids uncomfortable situations in the future Mm -hmm.
0: uh i think we'll have to leave it there uh jake thanks so much for joining me today yeah thank you so much for having me you heard Uh, Jacqueline Plan, there, who is the drama editor for This Side of West and a playwright and writing student here at UVic. And I want to thank her for uh, joining me yesterday to talk about that. And now, uh, Cafe Scientifique is a series of talks intended to bring elements of research to the public. And coming up this month are. Uh, On November 15th, the top 10 diseases of all time will be presented at Herman's Jazz Club. Dr. Robert Smith is a visiting speaker from the University of Ottawa, and he joins me now to discuss the information that he will present later. Good morning.
2: Hi, thanks for having
0: me. So your talk is called the top 10 diseases of all time, and how are you measuring them and what makes them the top?
3: Yeah, it's, it, it's a tricky question, actually, because we, we would think that, the, you know, that there'd be an easy way to just say, well, what's the worst thing of all the time? Or something like that. Um, the problem is, what's a bad disease? Is it a disease that you get and then you die really quickly or really painfully? Um, there are really bad diseases like that, like Ebola, but they don't actually sometimes spread very fast because they tend to kill the host really quickly. So you can have a bad disease, that's bad for you, but it's not necessarily bad for the whole group. Um, so Ebola is scary because it comes at you very fast, but it's not actually scary because it's going to just destroy the world um you have other diseases like hiv that's that Spread very quietly, so it takes about 10 years for you to get symptoms of uh, AIDS once you have HIV. So that's a really stealth disease, but it spreads very effectively because nobody knows they have it, so they just blindly sort of spread it around. Um, so trying to determine what's a bad disease is a really tricky question. Um, I would say probably the thing that sh- most people would agree on is sort of number of deaths. And I think if you say take recorded deaths, that's at least a, a measure that we can count easily. We can say you know there are this many millions of people who die from the disease. Um, if we go from that, then there are some pretty bad diseases we've encountered in the time. Um, smallpox had something like, I think it's like 500 million people who died of that disease in the 20th century alone, um, and now it's zero because we've actually eradicated that disease. So that's that's our huge success story. Um, we brought that from many, many people to, to zero. Most of those people, of course, were children. People under five um, tended to catch it and either die or survive, usually. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, if you have other bad diseases like malaria, um, that's... Uh, I think it's about two hundred and fifty million people. Um, so, well, sorry, in, in, at least in recorded deaths um, in the twentieth century, um, um, things like measles kills many, many people. Um, that's about two hundred million. Um, uh, and then you go to historical diseases. And back in the day, there was you know the bubonic plague that sort of you know spread across Europe. Uh, the, the Spanish flu, which um, wiped out. Um, I think about 100 million people, um, but the actually, actually infected about a third of the world at the time. Um, so that was a very virulent disease. So we have all these measures of, of bad diseases, um, and you can sort of go down the list, and, and you get to something like HIV AIDS, which is about um, 30 million people, um, which is, is pretty terrible. Um, and then you fall further down, and then as you get into the, the lower levels, you get other smaller diseases that are still, you know, like very, you know, they're very bad, but they don't kill quite as many people. Mm-hmm. Um, so measuring what's an actual bad thing is, is sometimes not so easy.
0: Mm-hmm. And what first spawned your interest in disease, specifically, like coming from the perspective of a mathematician?
3: Uh, well, I was actually really amazed that you could use mathematics to with real problems like infectious diseases. I, when I found that out, I was just mind-blown. I thought that, you know, wow, I can use my math skills, which I've been, you know, <laughs> I had for years and, and was sort of, you know, working on sort of fun theoretical problems. But now you could apply it to something really practical and you could make a difference in somebody's life using something as theoretically abstract as mathematics, which I thought was just amazing. And so I I turned that to HIV AIDS and then I turned that to other diseases like human papillomavirus and malaria and then various tropical diseases and so on. Um, Because I think that the the great thing about mathematics is it can predict the future. And so, you know, there's there's math and there's crystal balls and that's it. We're not very good at predicting the future. Uh, Math can tell you what's going to happen based on your premise. And you have to build a mathematical model and your model may rely on assumptions. It may not be perfect. But the good thing about math as well is it's really cheap. You don't have to run huge experiments. You don't have to, you know, like get ethical clearances. So you can just you can just run your theoretical sort of construct and see what happens. And, and the trade-off is, of course, you may have multiple things that you know, so you can run many of them at once, and you can see all kinds of things happening simultaneously, and try and figure out what's likely to happen versus what's not likely to happen.
0: Mm-hmm. Now, uh, thinking back over the last like ten or fifteen years, uh, there have been some uh, epidemics, at least in the wealthier Western world, that haven't really turned out to be like as damaging as they might have been. Like, for instance, I'm thinking of like H1N1. Um, it, like, w- was that a, a situation where like people were using a, a crystal ball in your opinion, or were there actual was there actual math involved and it just didn't shake out in reality?
1: Uh, so
3: yeah, there's, it's a, probably a mixture of both, actually. Um, so suddenly when a new disease appears, like swine flu and H one N one, the mathematicians leap into action and, and try and predict what's going to happen. Um, and then, of course, one of the things that we're doing, of course, is we're intervening all the time. We're we're Closing schools, people. We're putting people on respirators and so on. So, uh, and one is the same strain of flu that Spanish influenza was, um, and that you know killed millions and millions of people and, and affected most of the world. And so, what's the difference between then and now? One of the differences we have better technology, right? We have um, you know respirators that can breathe for you. So, anyone who went on a respirator, went to the hospital, they would have died before because we didn't have that technology. But we have other more sophisticated things. We can inform people much more quickly that there's a disease happening because um, we have worldwide media. Um, on the flip side, we have much more global travel. So we have people moving the disease around faster. So it's almost like the arms race has increased on both sides. The disease mm-hmm. is better at spreading, but we're also better at counteracting it. So we take action and those actions sometimes pay off and sometimes they don't. Um, so Occasionally, you take actions that make it worse, but usually you take actions to make it better. Um, and the idea of math is to try and help predict which ones would be better. You know, how soon do we need to close schools? How long do you need to close them for? Things like that. Um, with HIV 1 in 2009, we also had a vaccine. And the vaccine actually turned out to be really good. Uh, it just it came really late. And so it came quite late in the epidemic. So the epidemic, had sort of
0: you say it would be sort of the biggest, like, threat in, like, in our, in our more modern times? You mentioned that travel is is one of them.
3: Yes. I mean, travel is, is a very good way of spreading disease, because diseases do not respect borders. It's, it's really, really hard to stop a disease spreading. I mean, so there's Ebola, which, you know, was, was a large outbreak in sort of Western Africa, and we were getting cases in the U.S., in the U.K., and Spain, and so on. <clears throat> and so, um, you know, we're, we're very good at moving around. <clears throat> Excuse me. And um, um, new diseases, when they pop up, have now a really good chance of getting out of where they are. And back in the day, that was harder to do. So some chance mutation of a new disease really has a danger of spreading very quickly. Um, I think one of the ones that we need to be most worried about is is bird flu, which people have often talked about and seems like it hasn't really happened much. There there has been bird flu, but mostly it's been people who work with birds and who've been slaughtering birds or or eating infected birds sort of in, in... regions where bird flu is endemic, but it hasn't spread to an airborne virus. But the problem with, with bird flu is that essentially it mutates inside each person who has it. And so everybody who catches bird flu catches a different strain, and it only takes one mutation to make it airborne, and then we have something very bad on our hands. So, so I, I would say that that's kind of what keeps me up at night is is that we could have a mutation to this existing disease that could make things really, really bad, and then we have a, a massive Spanish influenza-style epidemic on our hands, where you know a third of the world or you know fifth of the world or something you know gets infected with this disease, and many of whom die. Um, that's that's a scary one to me. Um, Mm-hmm. You know, and, and our, our travel these days is just going to make that worse.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, you've written about zombies and how uh, math could be what saves people in the event of like that outbreak. What, what prompted you to, to uh, apply math to a zombie outbreak?
3: Uh, yeah, well, originally, actually, it was just to illustrate um, what the tools of mathematical modelling could do, and it was a fun student project, and so it was basically, you know, my students and I sort of showing some other students how this stuff could work with a brand new unfamiliar disease. And so we, we picked zombies because we thought, well, no one's done this before, so we treat this as a disease. It's got its own quirks. It, you know, you have the dead coming back to life, which you don't have in any other disease. Um, you, you, with the Ebola, you have the dead being an active variable because the dead still infect people, but they don't, of course, walk around. Um, so there are some similarities to existing diseases. There are some differences, Um, obviously it's just a really fun way of kind of showing how you would do the process from scratch. You have to go back to the biology, you have to figure out what all the mechanics are of transmission, of who's being protected, um, who can be infected, and so on, and then try and create a mathematical model from that. And I think you always have to go back to the biology to kind of understand what's happening. So that means you have to have consultation who know the biology, who can, you know, think about it, who can understand enough math to kind of help you build a model and you can, you know, error check and so on. And once you have your model, then you can make your predictions and you can see what could happen. And in the case of the zombie epidemic, originally we thought, well, it's an easy answer. We'll just quarantine the zombies. If we take some of the zombies out, we'll take a critical number out, we'll put them away, then we'll take care of the problem. And the mathematics showed that that would actually not be a good solution. That would not really do much. And So that was very surprising to me because my instinct sort of said, I think we'll just take some of them out in in quarantine and we'll solve the whole problem, and it just didn't. And it turned out we had to be much more sophisticated. We had to, um, you know, attack them with education. So the idea was you wipe out zombies and then later you wipe them out better. So you get smarter at doing it each time, and then you do it again, smarter, and again, smarter. And, and after a while, you you make good enough at it that you can wipe them out. But it was this, this odd thing of sort of, I guess, a mix of kind of, you know, mindless violence and very smart for thinking. Uh, that was the key to zombies. Um, and I thought, you know, quarantine would do it, and I also thought maybe if we had a cure, that could do it, and it turned out those were not the case. So sometimes mathematics can give you insights into the stuff that, you know, you, you might otherwise think be the case, um, but it turns out actually is not true. And that's where I think math can be extremely useful.
0: Uh, now, uh, you you study infectious, infectious disease now, is this ranking, like, ranking the top 10 diseases of all time, is that a way for you to to bring, you know, otherwise inaccessible work to the public?
3: Yes, I, I think I'm very interested, actually, in, in bringing the ideas of math to the public. And of course, you know, the public, for the most part, are not going to be able to sort of solve a differential equation or something like that. But what they can do, I think, is see what the use of it is. and Actually, need someone to solve a differential equation. I can do that myself. What I need is somebody to ask me the right questions and say, hey, you know, in your zombie outbreak, you haven't thought about earthquakes. What if there's an earthquake that swallows the zombies? Then i say, Oh, yes, you know, well, if I thought of that, I decided it was trivial, but maybe it's not, and we could investigate that. So if somebody sort of asks the right questions and frames it the right way, together we can come up with a model and we can refine it, or other people can go and do that and we can analyze that. Um, so yeah, I think that making this At home and sort of, you know making protections and so on, and that was something to do. But it actually, turns out to be useful if there's an outbreak of a new disease, like swine flu or something like that, um, because suddenly you're taking protection and you're aware of kind of how things could go bad if things go very bad, um, and that's something that's not not such a terrible thing
0: to have. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, right now, there's not a there's not news of an epidemic at least here in Canada. But before that happens, is there a way that people like should pre- you know, prepare themselves?
3: Uh, I think it's good to be aware that, you know, that there might be something happening. And I think, if, you know, who knows what it might be. right? You know, there could be terrorist attacks or there could be disease outbreaks, or there could be whatever. I mean, it's always good to kind of have, you know, like, like sort of half an eye open. Not in a panicking kind of way because you don't want to panic about things that aren't, aren't there, um, but also just to be aware that, you know, I mean, even a flu storm means, you know, it might not be valued to have canned food and stuff like that. Right? So I, I think it's it's nice to be aware and then I think be ready so that when there's announced and it says, like, okay, we've got a new disease, you need to get the
0: Finally, uh, this is a lot, uh, maybe a little bit off topic, but for anyone who wants to search for you and look for more information, uh, your last name has a has a question mark on the end. What what prompted what
3: prompted yeah. that? Uh, well, my name is very common, and I think uh, they did a study on 538.com dot com and showed that Robert Smith is actually the third most common name in the United States, uh, which I, <laughs> mm. I was not that surprised by because my, my name is has always been extremely common. So I added the question mark when I was young to kind of differentiate myself from the other Robert Smiths out there. But when I became an academic, it actually was very, very useful because there are many Robert J. Smiths doing academic research. There are, in fact, Robert J. Smith studying you know, drug resistance in HIV models is so the kind uh-huh. of work that I do as well. So having something to differentiate myself from all the other Robert Smiths out there was, was very, very useful. And the question mark does that nicely.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, we'll have to leave it there. Uh, Dr. Smith, uh, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, you're very welcome. Uh, That was Dr. Robert Smith speaking to me from the University of Ottawa, and he will be in town to give a talk on the top 10 diseases of all time on November 15th. UVic Libraries uh, celebrated a new acquisition last week. The rare print edition of Sylvia Plath's uh, The Bell Jar features sketches added by Plath's daughter. Last Thursday, which would have been Plath's 84th birthday, the university held a talk by a leading Plath scholar. And joining me to talk about the importance of this addition to the library is Laura Wilson. She is the UVic Director of Special Collections and the university archivist. Good morning.
2: Good morning, Hugo. Thanks for having me on. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, uh,
0: for those who are unfamiliar, uh, what is the mission of Special Collections?
2: Okay, well, um, well, we actually have a combined unit. It is Special Collections and also the University Archives, so I'll speak first about Special Collections. So Special Collections acquires rare print material, so that would include books and uh, journals. Um, And we also acquire um, rare, I mean, unique archival materials in a variety of subjects. So English literature, you know, I mean, related to the PLAS acquisition, um, we have manuscripts from authors, we have military history, uh, we have um, records relating to uh, arts and culture in Victoria, we have our very large transgender archives, and we so we have a lot of rare we have we have unique material this unique archival material we have rare books and journals and they complement each other and then The University Archives acquires uh, the records of the university that have been identified for permanent retention, things like reports as well, the records of Senate and Board of Governors, and records going back many decades because the university was preceded by uh, Victoria College, uh, which was established in 1903, and the Provincial Normal School.
0: Now, uh, why is this uh, edition of the Bell Jar such an important acquisition for you, Vic?
2: Okay, so we, we do have other uh, very early uh, editions of Plath. Um, in w- when Special Collections was uh, established in the 1960s, there was a, definitely an effort to acquire um, the, um, the works of, of modern authors at that time. Um, It complements our other editions of the Bell Jar. This Bell Jar is significant for a couple of reasons. First, it was the first printing of the Bell Jar, and Plath uh, had it printed, had it published under a pseudonym, uh, Victoria Lucas. Um, Peter Steinberg, our visiting uh, lecturer last week, explained to me, um, and he is an expert, obviously, an expert in this area. Um, The second printing is particularly rare. Um, It was printed after her death, um, probably a run of about 500 copies. Um, And this edition differs quite a bit um, from later editions in terms of editorial changes to the text. Okay, Um, so
0: if you were to read it line by line, there would be some differences between that and, say, a modern printing?
2: Correct. Uh, Peter himself has done an analysis, and he, comparing to uh, a later edition, um, sort of the next edition, there are 400 differences. Mm
0: -hmm. And why were these differences uh, put in place?
2: Um, It's hard to say. Plath um, died... uh, Between the print, the first and second printing um, of the Bell Jar under Victoria Lucas, and so all the changes later were editorial, you know, changes done by editors. So I think speculation around these changes is certainly something that um, continues to this day.
0: Mm -hmm. Now, Mm -hmm. uh, how does the university uh, go about getting uh, something like this?
2: Well. We, we identify rare books to acquire in many different ways. Sometimes um, a faculty member will be aware of an edition that's for sale locally or online, and they'll contact me or my colleague, Heather Dean, the Special Collections Associate Director, and we'll explain why it would be valuable for teaching and research to have an edition, uh, a particular edition that they've seen in the case of the Bell Jar, um, it's quite interesting. Um, Peter Steinberg, who spoke last week, um, put a notice on his Twitter feed that this that this very special uh, volume, which had been illustrated um, with some drawings by um, Sylvia Plath and Ted Hughes's daughter Frida, was for sale. And my colleague Christine Wald, who's a librarian uh, here in at UVic, and also a poet and a PLAS scholar herself, uh, saw that um, and put it on her own social media feed, which I follow. I saw that this edition was for sale, so I, uh, I called her and we had a conversation about the value of adding this to our collection.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, and what's the response been like uh, from uh, scholars at UVic and also community members? Oh, it's
2: it's been tremendous. You mentioned to the listeners that last week we had a special lecture by Peter and uh, the sort of the launch, the the announcement of this um, of this acquisition, and we had a tremendous show from I mean, a turnout from the community, both faculty members and students, and people from around Victoria. We had over 100 people show up at our event, and we had to turn some people away. So Plath still resonates uh, today. She, I, I, that, I think, it, it's, it's a testament to the power of her writing.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and uh, what are some of the highlights in Special... Oh. Actually, before I go into that, if okay. anyone were to want to examine this copy for themselves, what, what would the process be like?
2: Just uh, come to the library at Merne Center for Learning, Mc, uh, McPherson Library. Come down to Special Collections and Archives. We're on the lower level. We're uh, open Monday to Friday, 8.30 to 4.30. Um, so our times are a bit more limited because the, you, can, you can look at our material in our reading room, but you can't check it out. So, mm-hmm. But anybody can come and look at it. All you just need is some picture ID.
0: Mm -hmm. Uh, And what are some of the other highlights in special collections that students might not be aware of?
2: Okay, well, uh, we have the Transgender Archives, which is the largest collection of uh, transgender-related rare print and archival material in the world. Most collections of that material are LGBT more broadly, but we we do acquire specifically in just trans-related history. Um, We have um, an extensive collection of archives from uh, artists uh, that have been nationally and internationally recognized. Uh, We have uh, military history. We have lots of rare books generally, that either because they were a very short print run or because of their content um, are controversial, um, are held only in special collections. We have a lot of anarchist material, both print and also archival material. We have um, the archives of um, a, a woman named Anne Hanson who's a, a member of the anarchist group, the, the, the Squamish Five. So okay. there's a lot to explore. That's just the tip of the iceberg, but we, we certainly welcome everyone to come in and and uh, learn a little bit more about these primary sources that we have. Mm-hmm. Uh,
0: now, as I understand it, Special Collections is celebrating its fiftieth anniversary this year. Correct. Um, are there any other special events or large acquisitions that we should know about?
2: Oh well, we have some. We have a special event tomorrow. We have a visiting uh, lecturer named uh, William Zacks, and he's going to talk about the art of letter writing um, over the centuries. So that's at um, Eleven thirty uh, to twelve thirty, or actually, it might be eleven thirty to one thirty. In special collections, um, we have um, um, that's listed on our events page on our on our web page, and uh, we certainly uh, we're always sort of looking at acquisitions for the year. So we'll certainly let if know if we have anything. Uh, particularly special coming
0: in Uh, that's great Uh, we'll have to leave it there thank you so much for joining us
2: thank you have a good day you too
0: laura wilson is the uvic director of special collections and the university archivist we were discussing the new acquisition of a rare print edition of sylvia plath's the bell jar I'm now joined by Miles Sauer, editor in the chief, editor in chief at the Martlet, <laughs> uh, to tell us more about what's happening uh, this week and what happened last week. Hey, Miles.
4: Hi, Hugo. How are you? I'm all right. How are you? Good. I'm not used to wearing the headphones. Uh, yeah, my so voice can... is booming
0: in my own ears. Mm-hmm. It's a thing that you only get used to after, after a long time. Um, so. Why don't we start off first with the EVSS AGM that happened? What was it on Thursday?
4: It was on Thursday, yeah.
0: Uh, Hempology was the big. Uh, it was the big draw. The big draw,
4: yeah. There was quite a good turnout. Um, Kevin Tupper told me yesterday that at one point there was 199, door like people in. Like that's a lot of people. Yeah. Um. So that like that met quorum, no problem. A mm-hmm. uh, lot of people there were definitely hempology supporters so i think Mm -hmm. that was a big part of it like a lot of people came out um but yeah the motion to ratify them as the advocacy group did not pass it was pretty decisive even with
0: even with that many uh hempology 101 supporters in the room
4: yeah yeah just quick glance when the vote took place it was pretty overwhelmingly in favor of um well not in favor opposed Mm -hmm. so Um, now there,
0: as I understand it, there was quite a lot of discussion before there was a vote that actually happened. What was, what were people talking about?
4: Uh, so it was pretty split between like Hempology supporters, um, and then advocacy group members saying just that they didn't feel that Hempology was like, did the work to properly be considered an advocacy group, um one person got up and said you know this group they say they're oppressed and they're marginalized but they hang out on campus every week and smoke cannabis which is still technically illegal Mm -hmm. and nobody gives them any issue like they can go out and do it like campus security knows about it the university knows about it and they don't do anything about it and so to say that they are marginalized is a kind of a joke because they have a lot of liberty to be able to go smoke out on campus um uh, and uh, another thing i guess if they were
0: to become an advocacy group was it was it the case that they would be drawing from a common pot of money that other advocacy groups without uh, a a dedicated
4: levy drew from yeah that too i think we talked about that last week mm-hmm. but they would they would then take a certain segment of that funding and that that came up like that was brought up by mm-hmm. i think it was lux by from pride Mm -hmm. Um, they said, yeah, they'd be pulling funding from other groups. And the other thing that Lux pointed out was that none of the advocacy members who got up to speak about it were in favor of it, which they said kind of tells you all you need to know. Like Mm -hmm. you have these other advocacy groups who are saying, we fought for this, we fought for this space, we fought for this funding and to just kind of hand Ampology 101 advocacy group status when they wouldn't be getting space and they wouldn't be getting funding. It would really just be a label um mm-hmm. that caused some concern
0: mm-hmm. um have you followed up with anyone from hempology 101 sort of about their reaction to it
4: uh, i tried getting in touch with club president joseph howey and he hasn't really responded to me and i've i'm probably going to give ted smith a call today just to see what his thoughts are but i saw on the hempology 101 facebook page somebody asked hey how'd the motion go today and they said oh it didn't pass And somebody, the same person said, oh, that's okay, we'll try again in February or something. And I'm not sure what that means, because I'm not sure what the rules are about putting the same motion forward at a subsequent general meeting. I don't know if you can do that.
0: Yeah, I'm not sure either, because I know that decisions made by the, yeah, it would have to be somewhere in the bylaws. Um, In terms of what's coming up, now, there is a student debt rally? that's coming up yeah so education affordability i should say
4: yeah tomorrow um the canadian federation of students is kind of organizing a nationwide day of action uh around tuition fees and like advocating for free education and so there's a few groups here on campus that are hosting a rally here right outside mcpherson library at 1 p.m tomorrow Mm -hmm. and that includes the young communist league um the UVic NDP club and a few others. I can't really remember off the top of my head. Mm -hmm. So that'll be taking place tomorrow. Kind of just a event in solidarity with this nation, this broader movement run by the CFS. Mm -hmm.
0: Um, As I recall, there was a similar rally that happened at the BC legislature about this time last year. Is that right?
4: Uh, I think, if you're thinking of the education as a right rally, that, that, was, in, that was in February, um, okay. but it's similar. And that group actually, education as a right is now a club and okay. they are one of the groups involved with this rally tomorrow. So. Mm-hmm. so it's evolved from an official UVSS campaign
0: that was run by the prior board mm-hmm. and it's become a club and they're just sort of the con- same kinds of... The same kind of people doing the same kind of work?
4: Yeah. It's, there's a few board members from last year, like Kenya Rogers is one of them. Um, mm-hmm. They're involved. Uh, the UVSS itself um, is not involved with this rally tomorrow. They were asked at a board meeting two weeks ago by one of the organizers to kind of help out with promotion and add their names to a few social media banners, that kind of thing. And the UVSS board voted in favor of not supporting that. They didn't want their name attached. Mm -hmm. Um, there are concerns on the board's part of appearing, uh, partisan because it was a UVic NDP kind of event. Mm -hmm. Um, and there are also concerns raised around the affiliation with the CFS, which as some people know, there's a bit of a messy history Mm -hmm. with the UVSS. So Mm -hmm. when those concerns were brought up, the board said, you know, we don't need to be attached to that. Mm-hmm. It's interesting how, like, the different perspectives of different boards can really
0: shape, like, the kinds of things that they take on.
4: Yeah, and I think a lot of people kind of knew that's how it would go. This board is certainly less advocacy-focused, I think. Not, well, maybe not ab- less advocacy-focused, but less rah-rah, like, take-it-to-the-streets kind of mm-hmm. action. mm mm-hmm. um,
0: yeah, In terms of other news that's happening, uh, you're featuring a... Uh, in in your in the center spread this week uh the quidditch the quidditch team
4: yeah the uvic valkyries did you know that they have they're like a vikes nation club now kind of i did not like they're kind of in the process of being um officially recognized or something like that i can't remember the exact language around that but yeah Mm -hmm. big deal yeah, because uh, there's some kind of national championship that's coming here yeah, later it, in the year. Yeah. Yep. In April, if I remember right, I read the story this weekend. I should know, but mm-hmm. uh, yeah, nationals. UVEX hosting them, and we're actually playing a few. They're actually playing a few games this weekend um, here at UVEX. I think so. Mm-hmm. Um, it's and- a cool story.
0: Any highlights or like if, if like people want to get involved or if they want to even just watch they practice in and around the quad Right.
4: Uh, they practice at the it's not the main rugby field by Carset. It's like on the other side of Mackenzie Street There's like free rugby fields in the back or something the smaller ones. Oh, I okay know. Because I, I remember they used to practice in the quad right and then once they got that Vikes kind of support they were able to have access to those fields and uh, <laughs> the current coach Um, said in this story that the muddy patch in the quad Hmm. that's apparently there is Yuvic Quidditch's fault because they definitely just killed the turf through practices. Hmm. I imagine
0: like through the like by the hoops, right? Like where they. Yeah, I I think so. Yeah, (laughs) I don't know. I don't play Quidditch. I thought about joining Quidditch actually, but I. not have hand-eye coordination
4: no it it seems like super complicated and the other thing too is that you're running around with those PVC pipes between your legs incredibly phallic it's so inappropriate I probably shouldn't say that but it's the first thing I thought when I looked at all the photos
0: so it's it's PVC pipe and it's not like broomsticks
4: no apparently they used to play with wooden sticks before Mm -hmm. Um, but uh, one of the players said that they would splinter and turn into spears so (laughs) That is a very real concern.
0: Yes. Um, any other highlights in the issue this week that people should look out for?
4: Um, uh, a lot of recaps of talks in the last couple of weeks. We got a recap of the VIC Model UN conference. We got a recap of the Walrus talks that just took place. Um, what else? Yeah, that's a good Not issue. All right.
0: So uh, keep keep your eye out for it uh, this Thursday. Miles, thanks so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. Uh, That does it for another episode of You in the Ring. Uh, I want to thank my producer, uh, Liz MacArthur. If you have any story tips, please send us an
2: email, spokenword at cfuv.ca. I am...